The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest is David Bronner, CEO of Dr. Bronner's, the top-selling brand of natural soaps in North America and producer of other organic body care and food products. While David might be in the soap business primarily, he has helped to redefine how big businesses source and grow typically destructive ingredients. In this interview, I discuss how David helped make Dr. Bronner's palm oil supply sustainable, something many companies have attempted unsuccessfully. I also get a stake on industrial agriculture and how profiting from monocultures is harming both people and the planet. David gets into the fascinating backstory of Dr. Bronner's soaps, and he shares his thoughts on a range of issues related to food, including the problems with organic farming, why regenerative agriculture is better, and how everyone, from vegans to meat eaters, can help foster a more sustainable world with our food choices. I'm here with David Bronner, businessman, activist, cosmic engagement officer for Dr. Bronner's Magic Soap, yes, CEO of Dr. Bronner's. David, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So what is the CEO of a um, soap company doing on a show that's focused on the future of food? Well, I know, David, you've jokingly said that you're so proud of the ingredients in your soap that you think people can eat the bars. Um, and But that's not the only reason we're here today. Um, so why don't we start off with um, talking about how Dr. Bronner's as a soap company got into the farming business, because I think, you know, there's an amazing story in itself. Um, let's start there. Right on. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, really the story starts with my grandfather, Dr. Bronner. He himself was a third generation master soap maker um, in a German Jewish soap making family. Um, uh, he was born in 1909. Um, and uh, by that time, his dad and two uncles were running the show and had three factories, uh, the largest of which was in Heilbronn in southern Germany, um, manufacturing soap that was uh, in part um, all the liquid soaps in the public washrooms in Germany. Um, and uh, with the rise, of it, so he apprenticed to another family and um, uh, another master soap making family and became a master soap maker under the guild system of the time got uh, the equivalent of a bachelor's or master's in chemistry, um, but also was very activist early on and very Zionist. And um, uh, his, he was, was constantly clashing with his dad and uncles who really didn't want my grandma mixing politics and soap. Um, and 
just with repeated generational classes. Uh, in, in 1929, my granddad came to the U.S., emigrated to the U.S., and became a consultant to the U.S. soap industry and helped build factories and launch products for, for different U.S. companies. At the same time, Hitler was coming to power and the rise of fascism in Germany. He was getting increasingly desperate to get his family out. His two sisters, uh, his youngest sister, Lottie, got out in 36, and Louise out in 38. And Lottie went to now Israel to a, to a kibbutz. Um, and Louisa came over uh, in 38, right before the borders closed. Um, but they were not able to get their family out or their parents out. Um, like many bourgeois Jews, thought the madness was going to blow over and they're going to write it out. And um, unfortunately, the um, factory was Aryanized in 1940, and they were shortly thereafter deported and killed. Um, and somehow, in the midst of all this incredible tragedy, and and then also in the U.S., my granddad's um, wife, my grandmother, um, they had three children, including my father. Um, Jim Verana, um, and um, Paula was, sit, was, was, was sickly and died when my dad was only four. So this is all happening in the early 40s. Um, and my granddad, you know, just, just having, you know, me and his parents and his wife, just going through an incredible amount of tragedy, yet somehow in the midst of it all, he's, he was having these intense mystical experiences of the oneness and light and love at the heart of mankind and at the heart of our faith traditions, at the heart of humanity, and that all the spiritual giants of, of the different faith traditions were saying the same thing, that we need to realize our transcendent unity and that we're all children of the same divine source. Um, and he felt, felt called to go around the country lecturing on this peace plan and that he felt that in the nuclear armed world, the next Holocaust, we're going to all perish if we don't realize that we're all brothers and sisters across the ethnic and religious divides. And um, as he's going around the country, he's also selling the family soap uh, recipe, the peppermint liquid soap. And, um, you know, to cut long story short, people were coming more after a while to buy his soap than necessarily stick around to hear everything he had to say. So he started putting what he had to say on the labels of our soap, um, which are now like, you know, 3,000 words of, of his philosophy, kind of just showing the unity of the different religious visions of, of different faith traditions. Um, he has kind of a primarily a, a Jewish, uh, kind of, he, he considered himself an Essene rabbi, but, you know, draws on on inspiration from, from many different faith traditions. And that philosophy is, is printed in very dense text on every label of our soap. And for him, the soap is really all about selling that label, that message. Um, it, the label is not about selling the soap. Um, I mean, partly, but mostly he was all about uh, spreading his concept of, of, of all one God faith and, and unity. Um, and, you know, ran the company as a nonprofit, or founded um, the company as a nonprofit religious organization um, to promote the moral ABC, as he called it. Um, and the IRS disagreed with that and fast forward to the 70s, he, he was in, in court, IRS won, so he had to reorganize as a for-profit, and my, and my dad and my mom were involved, um, 
so so Dr. Barnes is reorganized as a for-profit, but has this nonprofit um, DNA at the heart of its mission. That that the company itself is um, an activist engine that we leverage to um, accomplish different social and environmental goals, um, and, and, and just leverage for progressive change in general. Um, you know, we're not quite on like constantly uh, uh, on the all one vision and tip as, as he maybe was, but uh, translate this in a more kind of down to earth way. I mean, I'm very much on his kind of one love, all one vision, um, but we translate this maybe a little more practically um, in um, in our advocacy of trying to build a, a, a more just sustainable world. You know, I basically took over running the, the company it was going to be on activist terms. Um, like we, I was going to run this just like you know, my granddad, you know, I had envisioned, um, you know, and as my dad and mom and uncle were, were, were also running it, but, you know, notching it up to a, a, another level of, you know, really engaging on change, trying to change policy. Um, but first of all, taking responsibility for our own house and our own supply chains and our own ways that, you know, we operate in the world and, and, you know, something that um, I realized pretty quickly is that as cool as what we were doing in our main facility as far as really good progressive employee compensation and, and practices and benefits and um, and, and it's as biodegradable as soap is and as, um, ecologically benign in its end use, um, that the, the main materials, the coconut oil, the olive oil and, and palm and mint oils you know we had no idea really where they were coming from we were buying some brokers um we didn't know the farmers we didn't know the farming conditions and um so so we first we certified our supply chains organic and that was a big step in 2003 um but shortly thereafter we realized that organic doesn't really address at all the social conditions there's no um, there's no assurance within organic regulations that farmers are paid a fair price or that farm workers are treated fairly. Um, so then we set out to certify our supply chain as fair trade. And this was really difficult because there was no existing fair trade certified projects for coconut oil and olive oil and palm oil at the time. And actually, I should back up that there was, there was in fact, an olive oil. So the one existing project was a Palestinian project um to non-fair trade and really amazing um so 90 percent of our olive oil comes from palestinian farmers in the Janine area and then to be clear we're not anti-israel about it we also source 10 percent from the israeli side and that's split between a jewish family farm and a christian arab israeli project um and that's kind of cool because that, that we're mixing Muslim, Christian, and Jewish olive oil in our soap and very much symbolizes my granddad's vision of, of all one. Um, so, but yeah, so, you know, just, you know, our, our activism initially was very much in terms of our own supply chains and taking responsibility um, for them. And then as well. So yeah. do you own those? Do you actually own these farms, like the coconut oil farm in um, in Sri Lanka and palm oil some in Africa and I believe peppermint in India? Do you own them directly or do you have partnerships? Right. So so in the case of coconut and palm, um, where there was no pre-existing projects 
um, we were setting out like, okay, like, you know, how do we, how do we go about this? And then the tsunami hit in Sri Lanka and one of our key, um, uh, uh, key aces on our staff, Gerald Asone, he already had extensive networks in Sri Lanka. And so we were funding a tsunami relief project called Second Aid. And the idea was that it, like the media cycle would move on and all the food and money and clothes you know, would, would stop, but what really needed to happen is is rebuilding industry and infrastructure, like repair fishing boats and sewing shops and stuff like that. So we we're engaged on, on those kind of activities. And then, you know, we're realizing, oh, wait a minute, there's like an incredible coconut infrastructure here. So one thing led to another and we set up our own uh, uh, sister company, Sand Pole in Sri Lanka with local partners. Um, yeah, so we own that factory, but all the farms and the farmers we work with are smallholders who independently um, farm their land. And they're generally like small five acre, five, five to 20 acre uh, plots. Um, and then we just, we purchase from them uh, on fair trade terms. So they get both an organic and a fair trade premium. Um, and we're supplying, for example, compost at cost um, and generally tra and I'm training our farmers and best regenerative organic practices and helping them boost yields and incomes. Um, wow, there's just so much there to unpack. I mean, starting with um, your the, the history and background of the company and um, how it led to you get you becoming a part of it and sort of understanding your grandfather's vision, which most what maybe most other people at that time didn't understand. Um, and what I think is interesting is then you kept that mission focused starting in the 90s um, by first cleaning your own supply chains um, and then how that's evolved. And I think the fascinating part is here is that you've you've stuck to that mission and evolved it over time while also growing the business. Um, so Dr. Bronner's has probably never been more successful than it is now um, while you still sticking with the ideals of... Uh, your, you know, soap, soap is merely a way to show that products can be made um, in an ethical, sustainable um, and fair way. So, you know, firstly, that's amazing. Um, I think that's a good start. And, you know, what most people might not know is one of the interesting things about your company is that you, while most companies tend to focus a lot on advertising and promotion, you sort of put those budgets in favor of, um, I don't even think you can call it budgets, really. You put your profits in favor of activism. Um, and if anyone's been following what uh, what you've been doing the last few years, you've, uh, in addition to fair trade standards and sort of taking the lead on that and kind of control over your own supply chains and your sources of ingredients, you've focused on um, and hemp and cannabis reform, GMO labeling, as well as drug policy reform and animal welfare. But what, so without going, getting into each one of those individual ones, let's, let's try to talk about one of your recent um, causes that you seem to be focused on, uh, regenerative agriculture and the importance of soil in the, um, in the battle uh, against climate change and in the battle to redefine our food system to be one that can actually feed our growing population rather than uh, continued continuing to destroy the planet. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what regenerative agriculture is to begin with and why is that the cause that you're now spending so much time and energy and money on? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, I think actually our Palmer project is a good, um, a good example. It kind of hit, hits on a lot of these different issues. Um, so, um, especially your listeners are, are, are probably extra concerned when they hear palm oil, because generally that means uh, 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 plantations, totally unsustainable plant plantations in Indonesia um, and, and Borneo that, that are wiping out rainforests and decimating orangutan habitat, and, and they're just a complete disaster and, 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 and destroying wetlands and, and releasing massive amounts of carbon dioxide or, or oxidizing soil organic matter up into the atmosphere and, you know, just completely unethical, unsustainable and cruel operations. But palm oil, like any crop, can be grown in an un a sustainable or, or an unsustainable way. Um, and, um, you know, for example, a lot of the rainforest in South America is being uh, destroyed for grazing land and then subsequently soy plantations, uh, like GMO soy plantations for animal feed. Um, so, um, so in the case of our palm oil project in Ghana, we're working with smallholders on, on plots of land that are not, you know, no rainforest has been cleared. Um, you know, these are farms from 50 years ago and we come in and basically we'll work with, you know, international experts in regenerative agriculture and in, in, in regenerative agriculture, really it's, it's crop and, and region and, and farm uh, and, you know, each, each individual context is, is different, but the general principles is that uh, you want to keep soil covered. So we, we don't use chemicals. So we remove chemicals from the ecosystem from the farm ecosystem. Um, we farm in, in a holistic, regenerative, organic way, which means we have a diverse crop rotation to interrupt weed and, and, and insect pest pressure. Um, we have perimeter plantings where where predator friendly predator insects we provide habitat and they naturally will control the pest insects. Um, and just you know basically smart rotation strategies that also include nitrogen fixing cover crops. Um, so you want to keep soil covered and not bare so that it's, a, it's not eroding and um, uh, oxidizing. Um, and especially nitrogen fixing cover crops and legumes like soy and peas, that they'll actually bring and fix nitrogen naturally from the atmosphere into the soil um, through a, there's a symbiotic relationship with, with bacteria in the, in the roots. And so instead of putting synthetic nitrogen, you're using natural nitrogen from the atmosphere through a natural process that expends no energy. There's, there's, there's no negatives. In fact, it's very positive. Um, and all, all together, this is actually building soil and, and building soil organic matter and, and boosting its fertility such that you don't need these synthetic inputs to get really high yield. Um, and, and how so, is that, if I can interrupt there, how is that uh, different from organic and how would you sort of compare? I know, you know, not speaking about organic certification necessarily, but really what has come, what people have come to understand as organic farming as being and a better alternative to your uh, monoculture pesticide farming alternatives out there. How does regenerative agriculture compare to that, or how is it more, um, how is it better than it, and in, in, in what ways? Well, organic at its best is regenerative. Um, unfortunately, with the industrialization of organic, there's a lot of farms now that are farming in a way that's organic by the letter of the law, but not by the spirit, not by the regenerative spirit. 
And when it's not in that regenerative spirit, what, what's happening is one, so so what's damaging the, the soil is both pesticides, but also tillage. So uh, a lot of organic farmers over rely on tillage to control weeds. And that's where you're turning over the soil and plowing it up. And, and, and I mean, tillage is necessary in a regenerative organic system. You just want to minimize that soil disturbance. And all too often, there's um, like organic farmers who don't even know what they're doing and they just um, over relying on tillage. And that's not good for soil either. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, it's important to really bring regenerative practices to those kind of organic farms that are kind of farming more on an industrial model, just, you know, just kind of making tweaks um, and, 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 you know, basically not using pesticides, but not proactively regenerating their soil and, and relying uh, oftentimes on capable manures for their fertility, rather than building the fertility naturally in the soil through cover crop, using cover crops that will, you know, fix nitrogen into the soil and build that fertility. And, and that's another big one is just making sure that you are using cover crops. So you have your cash crop and then you put a cover crop in on in the winter. Or So um, you fix the nitrogen in the soil rather than... Yeah, and you, and you don't leave the soil bare. And, and so, so the difference is like organic, the regulations don't, you know, they don't mandate regenerative practices, you know, they have kind of like soft language about you should improve your soil health, but there's no like hard requirements. So regenerative, when we're, we're actually actively involved right now with Rodale and, and certain part uh, like Patagonia and some, some other brands on, on, on defining the regenerative organic standard, like what do we mean and, and actually defining um, the practices that should be in place on a organic farm and um, got it and does cool. this does this always have to um so does this apply only for um livestock or it can be these practices as i think you pointed out you're being used for palm oil as well can it be used for all crops and i guess that's a two-part question one is that and the second is um to what extent is animal impact a crucial part of regenerative agriculture or is it is it not necessary if you're just farming for vegetables Right. Um, yeah. So, so when we talk about regenerative farming, it does depend on the crop, or if it's livestock, or a tree crop, or an annual crop. Um, so, for instance, in Ghana, with our palm oil project, we are we're intercropping. Uh, so that's a big part is intercropping um, uh, a complementary species. So intercropping with cocoa with our with our palm trees and then taking it really to the next level especially in the tropics and with with tree crops um there's something called uh dynamic ag agroforestry or, or multi-strata um, um uh, ag forestry and what that means is you're, you're planting like multiple species complementary species not just two but like five that where you're maximizing the photosynthetic um opportunity in a given space by planting, like if you look at like a wild ecosystem, there's like different strata of, of, of species. You got your tall trees, you got your medium trees, you got your bushes, you got your grasses. So 
uh, with, with dynamic agroforestry, you're basically mimicking that and using productive crops that, you know, kind of occupy these different niches that would correspond to a, a wild system. And you're basically doubling your yield overall by farming in, in this fashion. And so, um, you know, in this case, there's, you know, animal impact is not necessary. I mean, you can integrate, um, you know, for instance, you could have, you know, goats or sheep grazing in there. Or not. I mean, it's not the system isn't isn't dependent on it. Um, you, I mean, the animals will provide, um, you know, weed control. And so, if you don't have animals, then you have to, um, you know, just go in there mechanically to deal with the weed pressure. The cover crop, the nitrogen system cover crop, that could be grazed by livestock in a regenerative fashion. And, and generally, uh, and, and actually to clarify, I mean ruminants. So that would be um, um, cows, sheep, goats. Like if they're managed, uh, if their grazing pattern is managed on that cover crop that's fixing nitrogen um, uh, in a way that mimics the way large herds of, of herbivores evolve in the grasslands, which means basically predator pressure would keep them bunched up and moving to the landscape in a way that they didn't overgraze any one area. Um, and and or undergraze and and so it's called multi-padded grazing you're actually moving the cattle so, through so the that, is it like similar grass. to what alan the, the savory institute um their their standards or what they proposed as a way to yeah to... right i mean it's similar i mean you know i don't agree you know everything um you know savory does but you know in in this is the their basic insight is totally correct that if you um manage ruminants you know, like in a wild ecosystem, then that's actually healthy for grasslands. And in that animal impact is like fire that if you manage it correctly, can be very useful in controlling and, and helping improve the soil and, and overall ecosystem function. But if you don't manage it carefully, then it's a disaster. And unfortunately, that's pretty much the case on most farms and rangelands is it's just Totally unmanaged. How does how does uh, the disaster. how does methane play a role? I mean, I know you can you can potentially sequester carbon by doing that. Um, I, I think at this point it, it it hasn't been done. It it hasn't been proven to be done on scale. But how does um, methane as a greenhouse gas f uh, figure in? Is that you know? So is, is it is it a is it better? Well, not the yeah. it, there's no perfect way I'm sure to, to to farm animals. But is that you're saying is better than what is available today? Yeah, it's better. Well, I mean, because when you're grazing in this fashion, you're actually sequestering carbon into the soil. Um, uh, uh, you're, you're basically regenerating the soil. And um, so there's an offset or mitigating impact of that uh, against the methane um, when when it's integrated. And, and you know, and it's kind of like, you know, you know, what's to say the vegan utopia that, you know, idea that we will all live in someday would be you'd have, you know, wild herds of herb herbivores and there is some natural balance um, in the wild of, of, you know, methane emitting ruminants uh, in, in, the, in the landscape that is in equilibrium uh, overall planetary wise. And so I think like there is a, a way that our, you know, if we dramatically reduce the, the population of livestock and, you know, reduce it in, in a way that you know, mimics what is the sustainable balance in a wild ecosystem of, of animal life to plant life. I mean, I think there is a, a way of doing that in a holistic and sustainable way. And, um, but the, the, you know, basically has to be much less population of 
ruminants, they need to be out of these cave cages, you know, where they're just suffering miserably um, and, and eating, you know, grain they haven't evolved to eat that's been farmed in a com completely degenerative way and, and liberated to eat the grass they evolved to eat and, and managed in a way that is actually improving that overall soil health and, and function. And that's like a lot less animal. Yeah. So, I mean, you're food. saying that even if, you know, I think some people may take this, I guess you probably have gotten this question too, is in you're vegan, why are you focused on helping animal farmers try to figure out how to do what they do better? But I think what you just said was a very important point is that there's no way we can even do this without cutting down on our consumption to begin with. For for this to even work, yeah. there has to be less animals, less farm animals, really. Well, yeah, absolutely. And just to be clear, and then also to your earlier question, um, you know, I think livestock integration can be helpful in, in if it's done, you know, totally correctly and in in, in reduced numbers. Um, but it is not necessary, and that veganic agriculture is is totally a legitimate and um, uh, viable way of producing food. And, and where the cover crop, the nitrogen fixing cover crop, rather than being grazed and digested and pooped onto the ground, will be mechanically disked into the ground uh, before the cash crop is put in. So you can perform the same regenerative function via mechanical um, disking, and you don't need livestock integrated to regenerate soil and, and, and farm in a regenerative fashion. So, you know, but that said, it's like, you know, the, the, the sample I take is that these high animal welfare farms that do integrate livestock, where you basically, you know, you could either mechanically diss that cover crop or you could graze it, that, you know, if they're managing animals in a high animal welfare way, um, you know, improving soil health and, uh, you know, and ideally the, the slaughter is, is done in a low stress, you know, quick, efficient, you know, way that, you know, while it's not my choice that, you know, these are allies in a much larger fight we're engaged in against the capo machine that's producing 99% of animal products. And it's not a useful fight uh, to be targeting high animal welfare, pasture-based livestock operations who are natural allies against this machine um, that is dominating the, the you know, the, the planet um, and that we should be in solidarity with these high animal welfare um, livestock farmers um, and, and not be targeting them. I think it's a distraction and that we can have a final showdown in a hundred years between a vegan, you know, permaculture versus a you know, low animal livestock permaculture world. Um, but like right now we're, you know, we need to be in solidarity. And that's kind of our standpoint is that it's like, you know, we, we need to focus on on improving the 99%. Yeah, I mean, I think of, that's a very important distinction yeah. that, that you just made over there. And I think, you know, even you pointed out that meat from ruminants that are grazed on even the most productive um Pastures doesn't produce nearly as much protein as, uh, say, cereal or legumes or bean crops per acre. So you're pretty clear on the fact that, you know, the best, the best possible choice is obviously to choose um, organic or regenerative local plant-based foods. But um, what the the problem we're facing today is, as you pointed out, 99% of meat 
is produced out of uh, the factory farming system or the industrial and animal agriculture system. And as things stand today, we aren't in a, in a vegan utopia and people still want to eat meat. And so there's, a, there's room for, uh, even though we, you may not choose to, or you, I, or even some of our listeners may not choose to uh, partake in that, there, and you don't necessarily have to even endorse those products, but you're just pointing to a way to do animal farming that in a world, hopefully, that we can head to where meat consumption has been reduced to a luxury, um, this, these farms can potentially fulfill that need. And we need to head, start heading in that direction. And we can't do that if we are all sort of fighting each other and while, you know, the KFOs continue to grow. Yeah, exactly. And, and you, know, you know, basically mirroring a message of like much less, much better meat. Um, you know, people are going to choose to consume animal products. They should eat much less of them and, and spend a lot more for them to make sure that they were raised in a sustainable, uh, high animal welfare fashion. Um, and and I think that's a really powerful coalition um, that's emerging. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, a lot of the the major animal welfare orgs are more or less, you know, doing exactly this. I mean, they are in partnership with the high animal welfare. Um, ranches and so there's in, in a way similar most effective allies because they know from the inside out what is totally unacceptable and um, can call people on on their BS um, when they try to justify really inhumane and cruel practices. Yeah, and you know I think that as as being what is someone's personal choice versus endorsing it versus just trying to sh- outline. Um, different ways in which farming can happen are, are all three different things. And I think it's important for for people to understand that. So given that, given, I mean, I think we've, you know, given that people are consuming meat today and for the foreseeable future want to consume meat, what are your thoughts on, um, on what's happening with the plant-based meat space, for example, alternative proteins emerging, as well as um, clean meat or cellular agriculture? Are you putting energy and your focus and money there as well? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think it's great. I think it's awesome that, um, you know, we, we are creatures of, of convenience. And, you know, if we can meet people where they're at, uh, you know, the creature of habit and convenience. And, you know, people are used to chicken tasting and, and, and chewing in a certain way and, and, and burgers and all the rest. And if, if we can deliver that, you know, you know, tasty, get the texture right, get the price right. Um, I, you know, that's massive. And, and you know, we're going to do a lot, get, get go a long way to solving the problem of industrial agriculture and CAFOs um, via substituting tasty, um, you know, well-priced um, meat and, and dairy substitutes. Um, and, yeah, these next-generation products are just kind of mind-blowing. I had the Impossible Burger a few months ago in New York, it was incredible. And, um, you know, I'm, you know, right now it's just available in some of the hipster eateries. I get, I'm not sure what the rollout plan is, but if they can, you know, get that into the markets at a competitive price point, I think that's just really starts to remove a lot of the, um, inertia, hopefully, um, within the kind of larger population to at least drastically reduce their, Meat consumption, and then when they do consume animal products, that they actually spring for the, you know, much higher animal welfare option. 
Um, and, and we do support the Good Food Institute. Um, uh, that's, our, I guess, our primary um, our NGO partner that is working in this space. Um, we really think Food Friedrich is a you know, strategic genius and, and, and really want to help him, you know, revolutionize the world and, and all the partners he's working with. with you know, and, and I actually just had Miyoko's cheese. I met Miyoko, and, you know, that's just incredible. Um, she just made butter. I don't know if you've tried this. This this, this vegan butter that Miyoko's made is just incredible. And, um, you know, I've always kind of thought vegan cheese is pretty weak, but now, I'm, you know, what Miyoko's doing is incredible. And she had kind of a Tesla model. She was initially hitting these kind of high-end, she's doing this cultured nut butter, you know, high-end cheese, but now she's doing mozzarella and butter and cream cheese. And so, um, yeah, it's really exciting and I think can go a long way to um, solving the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no one solution. You need all of it, all of it happening at the same time. And I think it's amazing as you're in the position to to influence change on all fronts, um, whether it's supporting a GFI and what they're doing around plant-based meats and uh, clean meat or uh, the regenerative agriculture movement, whether it's for plant foods or even for livestock management. Um, wh- where do you think things like, um, and I know you, you live in California, I'm assuming not near a very urban area, but what are your thoughts on the fact that, you know, majority of not only is the world's population growing, it's migrating towards to urban areas and cities. Um, We are based out of New York City and out here we're seeing a lot of exciting things happening in terms of um, whether it's rooftop farming or uh, vertical farming indoors using hydroponics and aeroponics and things of that uh, technologies like that. What are your thoughts on that? Are you involved in that space at all? Well, um, I'm, I'm not. And, you know, and I guess, you know, all those different technologies, I guess the concern I would have is just, you know, what's the energy intensity or footprint um, versus a soil-based system. Um, you know, I think, you know, as people, you know, I think the population we need to get under control is not so much people. I mean, that's going to level out here at 9 billion. It's, it's the animals that we're eating. I mean, that's what's magnifying our impact by, you know, 5 to 24. And, you know, if we drastically reduce the number of animals eating, then we're going to have more than enough agricultural land to farm in a regenerative organic fashion. And and I do think that uh, vegans, it's, it is an ethical imperative, a vegan imperative to farm or to source organic and regenerative. Because if you're buying industrial soy, for example, um, or just, you know, conventional soy, I mean, that's farmed in a way that, you know, these pesticides and neonicotinoids and insecticides, I mean, they have incredible killing power. And they're, they're, they're killing like non-target wildlife right and left and creating these massive dead zones in, in the ocean. And so it's, it's just really important um, to, to, you know, buy organic from a vegan pr- perspective as well. Um, but, you know, rooftop gardens and, and you know, it, it, it's all how it's done. I mean, if it's done in a sustainable, regenerative way, then awesome. And if it's some super high-tech thing that's energy intensive, then that'd be less great. Yeah, and I think it's very important what you mentioned is that, you know, it's not as simple as um, it's not black and white. It's not you. You're vegan. Of course, you're doing better. But even within your next step should be where you're getting that food from, because you can that's where people pick apart certain examples. You could be eating monocultured uh, vegetables or crops and grains. And 
um, claiming to be saving the world when, uh, in fact, that could be worse than someone else's choice to buy some locally sourced uh, animal product, potentially. So, And it also depends on what your motivations are, of course, for eating that way. Uh, today, obviously, we're talking from a sustainability standpoint. Um, so, you know, as we sort of get uh, close in on this conversation, I'd love to... Um, what would be your takeaway? I know you kind of mentioned for vegans, it should be an ethical imperative to choose regenerative, organic, local, where possible. Um, what about, I guess, for meat eaters, Your what would your takeaway be, if any, for listeners are meat eaters? What, yeah. what should they be doing? Well, they should be looking for certifications. Um, uh, you know, the um, animal welfare approved is the highest, um, has the most rigorous certification for, for animal welfare. So... That's like the top. Um, also, GAP four, so Global Animal Partnership. When you see those scores in Whole Foods and elsewhere, you want to look for four and five. That's the pasture-based high animal welfare um, certification level. You know, one, two, three is obviously way better than than nothing, but you know, four and five is where it actually starts to make a real difference. Um, and then, certified humane is you want to look for pasture certified humane pasture. Um, and, and the, the pasture level regulations on certified man are, are, are pretty good. Um, and that'll, you know, these all cover, you know, meat, animal, or, or meat, dairy, and eggs. Um, and then, you know, and then also look for the organic. Um, you, you want both high animal and organic. Um, and that's, you know, and, and then owned with cattle and, and, and ruminants um, for both dairy and beef it should absolutely come from grass-fed certified grass-fed source um so that you know that the animals were you know up until their last day were living a life like they were evolved to to live and uh, all the terrible um you know just the, the consequences of eating a high grain diet for a ruminant i mean there's just all kinds of suffering that involves um and is also an environmental disaster because it's the yeah I mean, I think you would also, obviously, I'm sure you would echo this, that firstly, they should try to be try to eat less uh, and preferably yes. avoid eating animal products. And then, uh, of course, if you are going to make the choice, those are great options. But um, also, yeah, look out for uh, meat substitutes and uh, who knows when clean meat will hit the market and we'll be able to get that. And that may be a viable option to our industrialized farm uh, system today that's producing cheap meat that's not only destroying the planet but making us uh, pretty sick and leaving animals in um, lives of misery, the short lives of misery. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Uh, 100% green. Um, and, um, you know, another insight, just, just a little bit randomly, but uh, um, Aaron, uh, Aaron Gross, who's the uh, executive director of Farm Forward and um, he's a he's, he's a professor here at University of San Diego, and my neighbor, and just a real another real strategic cat in the movement, um, and, and working hard on this eating animal documentary that's going to be coming out that we're supporting and really excited about the impact that hopefully this documentary will have. Um, but in part, they were just in India, um, and it's really exciting because the potential of these meat substitutes. In, in in a culture like India that has a, a, a you know very strong vegetarian tradition and is you know been fast losing it, but it's there enough that I think if you you know when you can deliver you know the, these chicken and beef and lamb and you know other substitutes 
um, in a compelling way, I think there's going to be like that much greater cultural acceptance and um, rapid, hopefully, transformation in um, you know in other cultures that are just rapidly, um, unfortunately, um, replicating the unsustainable levels of of meat consumption in the West. So um, yeah, that's just another whole. Um, Really great area of impact at these like next level cultured meats and um, meat substitutes are, are going to have. Yeah, and I think that's important. Most people, when they think about meat substitutes and they think about um, clean meat or cellular meat in the in the U.S., um, they're, they're assuming that you're talking about promoting these products here in um, in only in the developed world. When I think the ones that need it the most are the developing world. And I, you know, as someone Myself, I grew up in India, and I've seen since I've, I've lived there for now 15 years, but I've seen the change happen there from a culture. Although I grew up eating meat, um, I've seen the culture shift from um, largely vegetarian to you know meat becoming this um, sign of uh, affluence and, and progress, and this you know growing middle class now wants to go out and eat meat and will go out and eat meat that's imported from other countries, which absolutely makes no sense. Um, but you know, that's the world we are in and we need, um, you know, we need everything we can to hopefully, um, offer people with the, with better options out there. Yeah. Right on. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's like the, the numbers are scary when you just kind of look at the, the patterns, but it, it's really exciting that, I mean, I really feel like the animal welfare and regenerative ag movements are on fire and, and, and these plant-based options are just, you know, intersecting at the right time. Cause yeah, I mean, there's no way that we can have, you know, 4 billion, you know, Indian and Chinese consumers consuming at the level of Americans. I mean, that's just crazy. Um, yeah. I mean, if you continue at current pace, India is going to be like the second highest meat con a, a, a country in terms of meat consumption uh, behind China by 2050. And that's just, we have to, we have to do something to prevent that from happening. You know, it's like hopping, you know, it's going like, let's just skip coal and go to, go to solar, you know, and, you know, it's just like, we need to just, uh, you know, just, you know, the, the certain development tra trajectories you can skip and, um, you know, help facilitate, um, you know, or like cellular phones, you know, and whatever we can, you know, you, you don't need to replicate the exact trajectory of, of developed, more developed countries. and. Um, yeah, so I, you know, and that's obviously a crucial piece of the puzzle here of a more humane and sustainable world. That's awesome. Well, I want to be mindful of your time, so I, you know, I'm going to try to wrap up now. Um, for, firstly, thanks so much for um, your time today and for what you're doing. Um, you know, I think you're really you you're, you yourself are carrying on your grandfather's legacy and uniting Spaceship Earth as you know we're kind of hurling through space, kind of clueless about the impact that we're having on this one little planet that we have. Um, and I also think it's really interesting at a time when, you know, you hear global brands trying to incorporate causes and purpose and are struggling to embrace those ideas in a half-hearted attempt to connect with uh, millennials and other demographics that apparently are now really into saving the world. You've and your company have been doing it by just being yourselves, and I think that's pretty commendable. Um, at the end of the day, you can't strategize authenticity. So, what you've done is amazing, and I and I appreciate you being um, on the podcast today. Thanks so much, David, for being on. 
Yeah, well, well, thank you for having me, and, and congratulations yourself. You're, you're uh, obviously what you're doing is awesome, and giving a platform for, for amazing people doing amazing work to share what they're doing. So, you know, thank you. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.